0: it was almost twenty years ago two thousand three four where this church made a commitment to pray for and believe for the establishing of the church of jesus christ in turkey it's the first generation there at that time when you did this the old testament the complete bible had just been finished being translated into modern turkish that's crazy eighty five million people there today they have the Bible. And I, I, I know what Paul felt like when he said, every time I think of you, I give thanks to God because I carry you in my heart. And I'm speaking that to you because he was speaking that to Philippians as he was on a mission sent from them to plant churches. And I carry you guys in my heart because you've made a commitment and you've stayed the course in prayer and spiritual warfare and faithfulness and there's a church in Turkey today I would love to tell you the details of how many million 14 watched the Jesus film over Christmas holidays shown on 18 secular new uh, TV stations. What? (laughs) The hardest of the hard places when you started in 2003 or 4 Turkey was listed by Operation World, the guys that do all the statistics, as the most unevangelized nation on earth. It's still very unevangelized. But today, there's an above ground church that you can go to. They have websites, they have buildings. This is unheard of in Muslim nations. That is thousands strong, probably pressing between 7,500 and 10,000 that will stand up, change their ID card, say, I'm a Christian, and be willing to. Some of them, to be severely ostracized, even persecuted for Jesus. And there's probably three times that many who are in house groups. But I just want to thank you, because that is, in no small part, churches like yours, and particularly yours, who have stayed the course. Things come and go, fads, things that are popular. You've stayed the course, one foot in front of the other, and have been faithful to Jesus. And there are people before the throne today And there's some who've not yet named his name. They're going to. And uh, let's keep praying that direction. I'm going to be in a Sunday school class. Actually have some greetings from some churches and pastors that you support. That I, um, I don't know, is it the Seeker Sunday school class I think I'm going to be in? I see some hit. If anybody wants to see that, and I can give you some very cool statistics. And some very pressing prayer requests. Because this next generation is being severely harassed. Uh, by police and families and yet they're standing strong for Jesus so I just want to say thank you again I don't know how to say that enough I don't know if you can get how precious this is Uh, but you will get it when we get in heaven and we get to go to the library there and you'll see a footnote on the witness of Christ in Turkey and uh, Chapel Street will be there (laughs)
1: Libraries in heaven. Amen. (laughs) I certainly hope so. Let's let's pray. God, we just pause and say thank you for the fact that your gospel is growing and bearing fruit all over this world. And sometimes here in the Tri-Cities, we feel somewhat insulated and distanced from what you're doing in other parts of the world, but it's it's a gift to us to hear just a glimpse of what you're doing in Turkey. Those are our brothers and sisters. Those are your sons and daughters. And we will someday worship all together around your throne. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we ask you to, by your spirit to encourage us, uh, help us to be faithful in prayer. And as we have the opportunity to contribute and do what we can to see the gospel flourish in that part of the world. Thank you for what you're doing. Strengthen and support the missionaries there, the Turks who are converting to faith in you there that face persecutions we cannot even imagine. God, by their faith, strengthen ours as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now... It's, it's clear I haven't been here in a while because now I have to walk down and get my Bible. I didn't know that Jason was going to have me stand up there. So I think I'm going to need this for what comes next. If you're new with us, we're in a series uh, on the Gospel of Mark called Following the King, examining Jesus as revealed to us as King in Mark's Gospel and what it means for us to follow him in our day and age. We don't use the language of kings and kingdoms very often, but that's precisely who Jesus is and what it means and for us to to follow him. So let me ask you a question. How does God grow our faith? Specifically how? We come to faith in Jesus at a point in time in our life when we profess faith in Him, believing that He is the Son of God, that He died physically on the cross, that He rose bodily from the dead, that He ascended into heaven, that His death and resurrection are sufficient payment for our sin, and that He's our only hope for now and eternity. But that's—sometimes Christians treat that as like a once-upon-a-time thing, like a transaction that happened in the distant past. A get-out-of-hell-free card we put in our pocket and hang on to until we get to the pearly gates. That's not how the Christian life is meant to be lived. So. We're meant to grow in faith, as long as he gives us breath and life here. But how does God do that? Faith, we're told, is a gift that God gives, but we're to grow in it, to walk by it, the Apostle Paul says. The way in which we grow in faith, or that God grows our faith more specifically, I think is often in the everyday events of our lives. It's not as if faith is some separate thing that we have to do on Sunday or spiritual moments. I talk to people who, if you ask someone, how's, it, how's your faith? They start thinking about things like Bible reading, prayer, going to church, and so on, which are very important things in the life of faith. But they very rarely talk about their, the everyday events of their life. But we should. The Apostle Paul says we walk by faith. We, li- where The righteous are meant to live by faith, Romans tells us. God wants to deepen your faith and mine in the everyday stuff of life by revealing him to us in those moments. Paul David Tripp says there is a very big difference between being amazed by God or astounded by God and walking by faith with God. This statement is crucial to understanding the message from Mark 6. We're going to dig into it together. So if you have your Bibles or your Mark journals, uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52 is our passage For today, I'll read it to you in its entirety. Mark 6, verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw they were making uh, headway painfully, for the wind was against them. This takes place, by the way, immediately following the feeding of the 5,000. That word, immediately, you may have heard this at a time or two in the series so far. Mark is the gospel of action. There are uh, fewer parables and more miracles in Mark than any of the other four gospels. G- Jesus is always on the move. The word immediately shows up a lot. Jesus is always going places and doing things. This takes place right after the feeding of the 5,000 we talked about last week. You can imagine the growing frenzy surrounding Jesus. He just fed 5,000, actually 5,000 men, so 10,000-plus people, miraculously. I was with a, a guy this week, and he said, um, yeah, but how, Pastor Jeff? Like, there's, there needs to be a postscript to that sermon. How did he feed the 5,000? Like, specifically, how did he do it? Like, did like, the loaves start shooting out of the baskets? Did he come out of, like, did he come out of, how did he do it? Well, we aren't told how, because that's not actually the point. That's, a very, that's something I, we all want to know. We're told not about the method, but the man who did this. Who fed the 5,000. And in, Mark's, in John's gospel, in John chapter 6, we're told that after he did that, the crowds want to make him king. Because, you know, if, if somebody's going to give you free bread for the rest of your life, make that guy king. Like, that's a pretty good deal if you can get it. So they want to make him king. Not because they want to follow him with their lives and surrender to his authority, but because of what they think he can give them. The kind of king Jesus is, The crowds were amazed and astounded by him, but they didn't really understand who he was or what his mission and purpose is. Jesus is going to be certain that his disciples don't make the same mistake. He's going to reveal himself to them as he is. Because even they are confused often. So are we. In verse 45, it says that Jesus made them get into the boat. Did you notice that? Jesus made them. That's really important to understand the story. This is not something they had intended to do. It was not their idea. They would have stayed with Jesus. I mean, he's the guy that has fed the 5,000, but Jesus makes them get in the boat. They were not necessarily predisposed to think of this or want to do this, but he makes them. He urged them. He compelled them. And they did. So in other words, the disciples are doing what Jesus told them to do. Instructed them, urged them, compelled them to do. We call this obedience. The scriptures tell us things we ought to be doing, right? There are things that God has said in his word to us that we should do. And when we attempt in our own strength to do them, we often fail. Nevertheless, we're told to obey the word of God. And that's what they're doing, obeying. But it's not easy. In fact, it's a struggle. The time clues in, this, in, the, in the text tell us that It it has—it's probably between six and eight hours they've been rowing at sea. You ever try to row against the wind and waves? Little rowboat? It's hard. These are professional fishermen rowing hard for six to eight hours, a work day—well, an American work day—against the waves. And they're getting nowhere. Here's the first point. Obedience is sometimes a struggle. Duh. You're like, yes, we know that, Pastor Jeff, right? Sometimes trying to obey what God has said is hard. It's slow going. It's like rowing against the wind. It's like you're trying to do what God has asked you to do, but you're just not making any progress. Anybody relate to that? You ever feel like I'm just not getting anywhere? This is really hard. Again, they're not in this situation because they're being foolish or because they're stubborn or prideful. They are foolish, stubborn, and prideful, and that gets them into trouble other places in the Gospels. But in this case, it's because Jesus told them to. He put them there, and they're getting nowhere. We ought to just pause there and say, that, that's interesting, isn't it? They're in a situation Jesus told them to be in, and they're getting nowhere. Let's look at verses 45 through the first part of, t- of verse 48 once more in the text, look a little closer. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Pause there for a minute. When it says the other side, we tend to think about, like, vertically crossing the Sea of Galilee or horizontally crossing the Sea of Galilee. It doesn't necessarily mean that. It means, like, if if um, you're—it means crossing—it's faster to sail or row, usually, uh, to just go around a part of the sea to a a nearby town than it is to, uh, to walk over land. And that's what they're doing. They're not going all the way across to the other side. Anyway. Back to the text verse 46 and after he'd taken leave of them he went up on the mountain to pray and when evening came the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land and he saw they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them some key things to notice here Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray and several hours passed by when evening came and he does not rush out to, to help them you notice this so the crowds have been fed. They've all gone home. It's sun is setting. Jesus puts the disciples in the boat, and he goes up on the mountain to pray. Time goes by, and he sees them as the sun is setting. It's getting dark now. They're rowing hard. They're getting nowhere. Jesus does not immediately come to solve all your problems or remove all your obstacles. I wish he would. Do you? But it's interesting to me that his first response here is not to rush down and help them, not to fix their issues. Of course, Jesus could have, from the mountainside, said, peace, be still, and the, the sea would have been calm. He could have solved it right from there, couldn't he? He could have snapped his fingers. He could have blinked his eyes, and they could have been to the other side magically. He doesn't do any of that. He waits, and he watches while they struggle. Eventually he comes to them, but not immediately. That also is instructive for us. Sometimes we're trying to obey God in our strength, and we're not getting anywhere, and we want him to fix our situation. We want him to remove the obstacles, make this easier. Where are you? This is the next point. God sees us in our struggle. God sees us in our struggle, even our struggle to obey. Verse 48 says, And he saw... It's so easy to forget this, isn't it? In my experience as a pastor, it's easy to doubt this. And I talk to people who—very few people doubt the existence of God. Very few Christians or churchgoers doubt the existence of God, the love of God, the presence of God when things are good. I've had very few—I can't even think of one offhand— conversations with someone in my office who said, my life is going great, God is blessing me, but I wonder if he's even there. They don't say that. When do we say that? When are we tempted to question his presence or his goodness or his love? When it's hard, when it's painful, when it's difficult, when there's a struggle. I just love those three words in verse 48. And he saw them. He saw. There's lots of allusions, clear and veiled, to the Old Testament character and nature of God in Mark's gospel. One of them here that I think of is the story of Hagar, who ran from the abuse and mistreatment of Sarai, who was in the desert. All alone, she thought, an angel appeared to her and told her to name her son Ishmael God hears and then told her that God sees her. And she called the place. She said, he El, called him El Roy, the God who sees. The God who sees me. Here are the disciples in the boat, rowing, struggling, wondering if, why they're there, what Jesus' purpose was. And he sees them. Look at verses 47 and 48 one more time. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on land. And he saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Jesus is up on the mountain praying, talking to his father, communing with his Father, praying for his disciples. And it struck me as I was reading through this to uh, to prepare again for the sermon, even in my Mark journal I commented, he's still doing this. Do you think about that? Jesus is still interceding for his followers, praying for us, communing with the Father, and praying for those who are struggling to obey and to follow him. The crowds were miraculously fed hours ago. They've all gone home. The sun has set. And by the way, if you're wondering what this might have been like, when my wife and I had the chance to travel with Pastor Brian and, and Lorene to Israel a number of years ago, we visited Mount Arbel, which is probably the, likely the place where this happened. And you'll see an image here of Mount Arbel. Uh, this is the view that Jesus may have had from that rocky outcropping. see those folks there? They built—I don't think he had an observation deck in the first century. But that's maybe where Jesus was, up on the mountain to pray. What, looking out of the sea is the sun setting. You're facing west in this picture. Or actually, northwest. And the sun setting— he sees them on the boat, wind against them. And the fourth watch of the night, anybody know what time that was? Somewhere between 4, 3, and 6 a.m. The fourth watch is 3 to 6 a.m., so somewhere around 3 a.m. So this, remember, when evening came, he's up on the mountain praying. It's a long time. Hours go by, rowing, 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 and he's watching. And then in his time, he comes to them. And how does he come to them? Walking on the sea. Walking on the sea. Walking on the sea. You are all way too, like, you've, you've heard this story too many times. You're too familiar with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Walking on the sea. Like, just walking. Think of it. He has not calmed the waves yet. The very waves that the disciples are terrified by and that are preventing them from making any headway, he's walking on. Think about that. It's crazy. Walking on the sea. He comes down to them. Why does he wait, though? We'll get to the walking in a minute. Why do you think he waits? Why not calm the sea in an instant? Why not rush to them in their struggle? I think part of the issue is that God is more concerned with your character than your comfort. This situation that they're in is way beyond their ability, and it's exactly where Jesus wants them to be. You find yourself in a situation that is way beyond your ability, that you feel like, I just don't have the wisdom. I just don't have the strength. I just don't have the insight. And by the way, the last 20 months, i felt that way every day. No, there's no seminary class, graduate school class, or pastor's cohort that trains you to lead a church through COVID or a global pandemic. Way beyond our ability. We've all felt that way over the last year and a half, two years. And it may be, when you feel that way, you're precisely where God wants you because He's going to reveal Himself to you. Why would Jesus want His followers to be in such a difficult situation? Isn't He a God of grace and mercy and kindness? Yes, but sometimes His grace is not comfortable. A number of years ago we did a series called Uncomfortable Grace based on a, a theological idea from Paul David Tripp's writings. He defines uncomfortable grace this way. Actually, I've adapted his definition for our purposes. A theology of uncomfortable grace. God will take you where you do not intend to go in order to teach you what you could not discover on your own. God will take you where you don't want to go, where you didn't intend to go, where you would not choose to go, in order to produce in you, to do in you, to teach you something you could not learn no other way. Jesus is not after relieving the difficulty, He's after revealing Himself and refining us in the process. If I'm honest, I often just want him to relieve the difficulty. Just end this. Just put a stop to this. Just get me through this. Let's just get to the other side. Get this over with. That is rarely his agenda. His agenda is to reveal himself to us in the difficulty and to refine us in the midst of it. But that doesn't happen if we're only focused on getting it over with. Do you think about God's divine purpose in your difficulty? Whatever it is, whatever it has been. Do you ever stop to think about, God, what are you doing in the midst of this? God, if you love me, please stop this, is the common prayer we all pray. But Jesus often has a much bigger agenda than ours. We want it over with. He's going to reveal himself. This is the point. God reveals himself to us in our struggle. Obedience is often a struggle, but God sees it, and he's going to reveal himself to us in it. There is something to learn about God and yourself in every struggle and difficulty you face. I want you to just for a minute think back over your life, however far back you can remember, and bring to mind the times when you have seen or experienced God in a profoundly new way. He became more real to you than he was before, less academic and more personally present. I'm going to guess that the majority of those times. Were not pleasant times. They were hard times. That God made himself more real to you in times of pain or struggle and difficulty. That if you think back over the course of your life of faith, the way that he has grown your faith in revealing the reality of who he is to you has been when it was hard, when it was challenging. Not to say that God can't reveal himself to us in in good times, of course he can. But C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, says God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience. He shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Why why is this? Part of the reason is because we're asking different questions in difficult times. In hard times, we're crying out to God for wisdom, for a very difficult decision, for comfort in in a very painful moment of loss. For grace to forgive someone that's wounded us. For strength to endure hardship. Whatever it is, we're crying out to God. We're asking Him for things. And it's often in hindsight that we look back and see how He answered those prayers. How He revealed Himself to us. Before we go any further, let me just point out something. That while it's true the disciples are in the boat, because Jesus said, get in the boat. He made them. And that's their difficulty. God put them there. It would be a mistake for us to think that every trial, every pain, every struggle, every hardship or loss we face is the direct cause of God. That's not true. They all exist inside of his sovereign will, but they're not all directly caused by him. That's an important distinction for us to make as followers of Jesus. Some are caused by our own stupidity and sinfulness. In fact, many. Some are caused just by what Romans 8 calls the, the groaning of creation, a broken world that was set wrong in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall, that things aren't as they're meant to be. God didn't cause the pandemic to happen, like reaching down to say, hey, I have a good idea. Let's give the whole globe a pandemic. It happens inside of his sovereignty, but he's not causing it. But even still, Whether in the boat because God put you there, or in the boat because you put you there. If it's hard, the point is this God can redeem it and God can use it. If we're paying attention. And God can reveal Himself to us in it. Let's look at verses forty-eight through fifty-one once more of the text. And he saw they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, "Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid." Jesus comes to them once more, let's say it together, walking on the sea. Well, I hope your familiarity with the Word of God, if you are familiar, doesn't blind you to what is happening here. He hasn't calmed the storm yet. What's one thing, if you're a note taker, if you've got your mark journals out, and by the way, if you want to pick one of those up, they're available for you, what's one thing the fact that Jesus walks on the sea is revealing to you about who he is? If it's true that God wants to reveal himself to us in our storm, in our struggle, what's one thing the fact that he's walking on the sea says to you about Jesus the King? Write it down. He's Lord of creation. He made the oceans. He separated the sea from the dry land. He's Lord of the wind and the waves. He can walk on them like you walk across the kitchen floor. It's nothing to him. That which is overwhelming to us, that which we make no progress in, that which threatens to unravel our lives, we think, is nothing to him. He's the king. And the minute he takes the walk, we should know what he's up to. The minute he decides to walk down from Mount Arbel across the sea to them, by the way, what would that have been? Like, what if you were, I always imagine, like, what if I was not a disciple and not Jesus, just some dude hanging out in the, in, you know, on the rocks? What? See this guy walk down the mountain and across the sea. We should know he's got an agenda. What's he up to? What's he doing? He's headed right for them. He wants them to understand who he is. He wants them to have a deeper grasp of his identity. He wants to reveal himself to them in a way they have not understood him yet. He was, by the way, the text says he meant to pass by them. Have you? Did you catch that? Doesn't it sound a little bit like he's trying to sneak past them? Like, is that really what's going on? Jesus, is like, oh, I know. I'm going to sneak past them. Get ahead of them. But won't they? Won't they be surprised they get to shore eight hours later? That's not what he's doing. It means he intends. Like, by the way, if Jesus didn't want to be detected, he wouldn't be detected. He didn't need a GPS. You know, He, he, he walked by them intentionally, meaning for them to see him. This is Jesus we're talking about. If he wanted to be incognito, he could have flown. He walks by them. It's reminiscent of the Old Testament stories in Exodus 33 when Moses wants to see the glory of the Lord and God hides him in the cleft of the rock and says, my glory is about to pass by. Or First or Kings, 2 Kings 19, when Elijah stands on Mount Horeb and God says, my glory is going to pass by. Jesus intends to pass by them, to reveal himself to them in a way they do not yet understand him. That gives me great encouragement to think about in my life and I feel like I'm rowing against the waves. I'm making no progress. That perhaps that's the very context in which Jesus wants to reveal himself to me in a way I don't know him yet. I don't grasp him fully yet. That's what he's doing there. He intends to pass by them. In fact, there's an Old Testament reference from the book of Job, chapter 9, verses 8 through 11, which is fascinating, and Mark may be drawing on this very idea from Job, chapter 9, verses 8-11, through where God we're speaking of of the Lord Almighty here. Who alone stretched out the heavens, and who trampled, that is walked, the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out, and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Jesus wants to pass by, and they will see him. They will understand, in time, who he is. Now, when the disciples see Jesus, the Lord Almighty, trampling on the wind and the waves of the storm, it's not calm yet, remember. By the way, that's important. The circumstances have not changed. Nothing's changed about their circumstances except Jesus has now inserted himself into their circumstances, which is essentially the gospel, isn't it? God inserts himself into our circumstances to do what we cannot do. They see Jesus walking on the sea, and what do they do? They all stand to their feet, like when Kenton says to stand, it's time to sing, and they sing hymns of worship and praise. Hallelujah! The Lord of the waves is here. Is that what they do? No. What do they do? They freak out. It's a ghost, they say. Now, that's... Shocking, if you think about it. They seem utterly unprepared for this moment. And I want you to pause for a minute and remember what they have seen already. They've already seen him calm a storm. Remember he's sleeping in the boat? This is not the first time. They've seen him feed 5,000 people. They've seen him raise a girl from the dead. And they think he's a ghost. I'm tempted to think, what is their problem? But don't be so quick to judge What about us? How often in our struggle do we do exactly the same thing? Do I do it? I've seen God be faithful time and time again in the pages of Scripture and in my own life and the lives of others. I know him. I've seen him come through over and over again. And yet when I'm in my little storm, rolling against the waves, what do I do? What do you do? Where are you? Do you even care? Don't you love me? We all do this how patient, how kind is Jesus that when the disciples are terrified like if I were writing the story here's how it would go you guys are never going to get it I've shown you myself over and over again what more do I have to do I raised a girl from the dead I calmed the storm a week ago what is wrong with you Uh, that's it, that's it out of the boat I'm getting new disciples (laughs) that would be how I would do it right? Like this is enough already I made an error in judgment clearly I overestimated your faith That's not what Jesus does. Praise God, is not what he does. He moves toward them. He says, peace. It is I. Take heart, it is I. By by the word, the the phrase actually means I am he. And most scholars think he's drawing on the sacred name of God. I am. I am is here. Don't be afraid. If you take nothing else with you from, from this story, take that. The I am is here. Walking on the waves, the very waves that terrify you, he walks on. I am is here. The I am has come to your little boat. The I am speaks to you. The I am sees you. The I am comes into the boat with you. We'll see that in just a minute. When, when, we're, when we face crisis, every one of us is preaching some kind of gospel to ourselves. Aren't we? Like, I have a, uh, my college football coach used to... Quote uh, uh, this phrase, which I think comes from the Navy SEALs. You do not, ri- nobody rises to the occasion under pressure. We think about it, I mean, he rose to the occasion. Nobody does that. You sink to the level of your training, to use military terms. You default to the level of your training. And he would say in football, you don't rise to the occasion in the moment, you, you default to the level of your preparedness. Spiritually speaking, I think the same thing is true. You don't suddenly muster up faith you never had before in a crisis you default to your understanding of who Jesus is. That's where you go. And if you've got a false gospel in your mind and heart, then you start preaching to yourself false things. The gospel of loneliness, the gospel of scarcity, the gospel of suffering, the gospel of Jesus isn't with, doesn't care, God isn't there. Jesus moves toward them, speaks words of comfort to them. He moves toward you. Let's look at the last two verses we wrap up. Verses 51 and 52. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now Mark rarely makes editorial comments on what's happening in the gospel, but he does so here in verse 52. Most of the time he just tells you what happened and then moves on to the next thing. But here he makes a little comment in verse 52. He says, They didn't understand about the loaves. What's he referring to? The previous story. The feeding of the 5,000. They didn't get it. Not really. They hadn't learned the lessons yet. It hadn't descended into their hearts and defined who they were. Their hearts were still hardened. But Jesus isn't done with them. And he's not done with you or me either. He got into the boat with them. You are not alone in your little boat. You think you are, but you're not. The I Am has invaded your life by his grace. That's the gospel. The great I Am has invaded my life by His grace. It's the fundamental truth that we should be preaching to ourselves when we're struggling at all times. And here's the truth. Sometimes you need the storm so that you can see the power and the glory. The disciples are utterly astounded. Some translations say amazed. You can be amazed by God and not be walking by faith with God. You know that's true? You can come to church and hear an amazing hymn and be astounded by the beauty of the music, even feel inspired spiritually, uplifted. Oh, that's gorgeous. You can hear a sermon, hopefully this one, but maybe a different one, that impacts you, that speaks to your heart, and you feel like, oh, that I need to think about that. That amazed me, the truth in the Bible. That's not the same thing as living by faith day by day with God. We, I see it all the time. One of my great prayers for us, for me, but for us as a church, is people come to Chapel Street Church, all of our campuses, and they're amazed, they're astounded. Look at the great things happening. Look at the amazing programs they have. Look at, the, and, but they're not surrendering their heart to the King and walking by faith with Him day by day. That's what Jesus is after—not to amaze us and astound us. I mean, of course, He is amazing and He is astounding, but his, He's not, He's not a, a, a magician doing tricks. He's the King who we follow, with our lives. Spiritually speaking, you don't suddenly, in a moment of struggle, decide to have faith. You shrink back. You fall back into your understanding of who Jesus is and what the gospel is. And this is what he's doing with these disciples. This is why he told them, get in the boat. I'm going up to pray. Get in the boat. He's not surprised by any of it. He, wants the, he knows what's coming after his death and resurrection. He knows the life that they'll be called to lead. He knows the sacrifices that will be required of them. He knows the joys and the highs. He also knows the moments of despair that are coming for them when he's not physically with them, but only the Holy Spirit is. And he's preparing them, and he's preparing you and me too. And the way he prepares you is, in your struggle, he sees you, he speaks to you, and he comes to you. And all of that to reveal himself to you. Some of us, and I'm guilty of this, we've stopped getting new revelations of who Jesus is. I don't mean new because the old ones aren't true, but there, there's always more of him. Do you understand? Not new in the sense of, oh, that Jesus was the wrong Jesus. It's the right Jesus, but at best, you and I have an incomplete understanding of Jesus. Isn't that true? How many of you would say, no, no, actually, uh, I, have, uh, I have a sufficient and complete understanding of who Jesus is? Your mind would be Infinite. We have finite minds. At best, we have an incomplete grasp of who he is. At worst, we have a false grasp. His agenda in your struggle is to give you more of himself so that you and I would know who it is that comes to us and is in the boat with us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story, which is so familiar to us that sometimes we just miss it. We pray that by your spirit you'd break through uh, the familiarity in our minds and hearts. That we, as your followers today, would see who you are. The Lord of the wind and the waves. The Lord of the storm. The King of all creation. We pause and acknowledge in great worship and wonder and awe at who you are. We confess that often, God, when we struggle to obey you... We just feel like it's somehow your fault or we wonder where you are. And all we really care about is just getting through it. Forgive us for that. Help us to see that you have a bigger agenda. That you long to reveal yourself to us if we only have eyes to see. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the great I am and that you come to us by your grace. We praise you in your name. Amen.